This is Innovative States, Ohio, Israel, and the Impact of Exchange, a podcast presentation of the Ohio-Israel Agriculture and Clean Tech Initiative, a project of the Negev Foundation. Stay tuned to learn about businesses, farmers, food producers, and researchers in Ohio and Israel who have joined together in the common pursuit of improving and modernizing the worlds of agriculture, clean tech, and food production, and discover what innovative opportunities the Ohio-Israel Agriculture and Clean Tech Initiative can offer you. Here's your host for Innovative States, Sean Fink. Shalom, and welcome to Innovative States, Ohio, Israel, and the Impact of Exchange, episode number five. On this month's edition, we'll be joined by Ohio State Senator Matt Dolan, a Republican serving Ohio's 24th Senate District, who recently visited Israel on one of OIACI's missions for elected officials from across Ohio. We'll also meet Justin Murata, a retired floriculturist and clean water advocate who participated in an OIACI water mission to Israel and discovered Israeli technology that was ripe for deployment back home in Ohio. And in our News You Can Use segment, we'll tell you about an Israeli agriculture venture that's found a modern-day use for an ancient seed. Partnerships Ohio State Senator Matt Dolan is an attorney who was first elected to the Ohio House of Representatives in 2004, where he served three terms. He's now the senator from Ohio's 24th district, a seat he was elected to in 2016. Senator Dolan recently visited Israel as a participant in a bipartisan OIACI mission for elected officials from across the state of Ohio. Senator Dolan spoke with me about what he learned while in Israel and his vision for how businesses in Israel and Ohio can form fruitful partnerships. We're joined now on Innovative States by Ohio State Senator Matt Dolan, whose district, the 24th, includes parts of Northeast Ohio, the suburban Cleveland area, and who recently attended a mission to Israel with the Ohio-Israel Agriculture and Clean Tech Initiative, as well as the Nega Foundation. Senator, it's a pleasure to have you with us. Thanks for having me on. Appreciate it. Tell us a little bit about how you first became aware of Negev Foundation and the Ohio-Israel Agriculture and Clean Tech Initiative, please. Well, as the finance chair in both the Ohio House and the Ohio Senate, I have been exposed to Negev through that role and began to understand the relationship we could have with Israel, not just as a country, but as a state, that uh, we want to certainly be attractive to you know mutual development uh, in Israel and Ohio, But I guess the very first thing was water. Recognize the innovation that was coming out of Israel, not just for drinking water, but for agriculture. And of course, agriculture is still one of our top industries. So that was the relationship. I think I first began to realize the synergies are there. And after your recent trip to Israel, what is it in your opinion that makes Israel such a prime partner and such an important partner for us here in America's heartland? Well... You only have to be in Israel for a couple of days to realize the entrepreneurial spirit runs deep. I mean, it runs uh, through the individuals, it runs through the companies, and it runs through the government. I mean, everyone believes that they have the talent there to create, and they create. They create in agriculture, they create in medicine, they create in technology. So when you're over there, you realize two things. One, that the spirit is incredible. And two, because of its size, I mean, Israel is, you know, Israel is the size of New Jersey. When they become entrepreneurs, not only do they have to come up with the idea, but they have to appreciate that this idea needs to scale because the only way it's going to show a return 
is that it needs to be able to be exported out to much larger nations. And of course, we want to receive that. So a lot of why Israel is so good to be with is because their ideas, they've already taken the next step. Here's how you can scale this idea. And of course, we want to be manufacturers here. Uh, we want to create a great economic climate here in Ohio so we can take the ideas and scale so that there's return on investment and everyone wins. So then let's talk about the converse a little bit. You're an elected official here in Ohio. Part of your job is not just to serve your constituents legislatively, but also, as you just mentioned, by helping to bring business to the state and more succinctly to your district. So when you go to Israel and you're meeting with everyone from farmers to food producers to tech developers, what are some of the fine points that you stress about what Ohio can offer to potential partners in Israel? First of all, everything starts at home that we have got to make sure that Ohio is a welcoming state and the United States is a welcoming country for business, for education, for investment. And you do that by making sure that we have the appropriate tax. You know, we don't overburden with taxes. We welcome people. We don't have overburden regulation, that we have both an education system that can produce PhDs and graduate degrees. And we have you know, workforce training that can produce welders and, and laborers so that when we go and sell Ohio, we are ready. We, we are ready. Your business can thrive in Ohio. We have the workforce. We have the energy. We have the business climate. And these are all things that, that I've tried to work on in my time in the legislature to do what you just said, to go sell Ohio to other nations. Israel produces, I forget what the stat is, but they're the second or third highest entrepreneur, fourth highest in patent creation. So we want to say, hey, you want to scale your projects? Come to Ohio. We're ready. I would imagine there's a good amount of support in Columbus for marketing Ohio on an international stage and to compete for international business. I'd also imagine this would be an increasingly rare area of bipartisan uh, agreement. Have you found that people are willing to cross the aisle when it comes to seeking partnerships, particularly with Israel, but uh, in general with uh, international businesses? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a fair statement to say that there is bipartisan support. Now, the process upon which to make Ohio welcoming, business-friendly, there is disagreement with Republicans and Democrats o over that as to what makes us attractive. But yes, I think you only have to look at Intel. You know, Intel came to Ohio in large part because of the groundwork laid by Governor DeWine and Jobs Ohio and us in the legislature, the, the tax climate we created, the tax credits we, we created. And that received bipartisan support because I think everyone understood the big economic win for Ohio uh, and the importance of Intel chip making uh, for the for the rest of the world to make sure that our supply chains don't get interrupted. So whether it's Israeli company, whether it's a German company, we are welcoming and bipartisan support there. Ohio has a mix of topography and demography with three large urban areas, Cleveland, Columbus, and Cincinnati, a number of smaller second tier, but still fairly large cities, including Akron, Canton, Toledo, Youngstown, and Dayton, uh, but also vast areas of farmland and agriculture throughout the state. As a state senator from the Cleveland area, how do you bridge those differences in marketing the state of Ohio when you speak with Israeli companies? I think as it relates to agriculture, the uh, part that northern Ohio has, not so much Cuyahoga County, we don't have the farmland, but surrounding areas, Jaga, Lake, Ashtabula, uh, you know, going out west, 
to into Erie and Sandusky is water. How to take advantage of Lake Erie water, not just for tourist reasons, not just for boating and fishing, but for manufacturing. I mean, most manufacturing plants need water. Most food processing plants need water. So while you are right, most of the state is rural and we, we have great agriculture. It would be great if Cleveland and Cuyahoga County can bring food processing plants like we have Nestle here. We want to bring other plants here, you know, get the farm to the factory, to the consumer. Uh, and to do that, you need plenty of water. That's how the synergy in Ohio can be used. Were there particular aspects of Israeli society that you saw on your trip that were key to how Israel does business and could be especially beneficial to potential partners here in Ohio? It was very enlightening to see the results of mandatory military enrollment. Because as you talk to these entrepreneurs, it is clear that they develop certain level of skills, both soft and hard, because of their military involvement, because they gained discipline before they went to university. And as a result of that, they were focused. The fact that we went to a military installment where only women were officers. So you develop in the business community these leaders who are women, and they're strong and competent. That is what struck me, is that Israel's developing their young people, both in terms of national pride and protection, which is paramount uh, and, and absolutely necessary. But the spillover effect is you have very focused, uh, uh, disciplined, and skilled individuals going out into the real world and you're reaping the benefits of that. That's an interesting takeaway for sure. What else did you see with regard to how Israeli startups and businesses in general operate that you think gives them a competitive edge in the international market? Yeah, I guess in the economic side, as I opened the entrepreneurial spirit, but the fact that the government is involved from the very beginning in terms of some seed money to help these entrepreneurs get going. That was startling to me. You know, in America, we tend to think uh, that the government money should be, the, if there's any, should be the last money. And Israel is saying, look, we know there's risk, but we are willing to take calculated risk on some entrepreneurs because we know how important it is. Clearly, the attitude of the government over there is to encourage entrepreneurship, encourage innovation, take risks. So that, that was probably my biggest surprise, how involved the government is early on in, in the entrepreneurial process. Yeah, it's almost become a cliche, but there's a reason that Israel is known as the startup nation, and that public-private cooperation plays a large role in that reputation. Our guest is State Senator Matt Dolan of uh, Ohio's 24th District. In the few minutes we have left, Senator, if people are listening and they have a business here in Ohio, whether it's a tech business or a food business, a farm, uh, and they're on the fence, no pun intended when we talk about agriculture, but they're on the fence about doing business with Israel because uh, they're concerned maybe about uh, a cultural or language uh, gap or the military situation in the Middle East or or they're just concerned at a more grassroots level about the regulatory situation here in Ohio and whether or not it'll be easy to get the permits to establish business with a partner in Israel. What can you speak about to those possible concerns based on your experience on your mission to Israel and your legislative background in Columbus? Uh, well, there, there's a lot crammed in there. First of all, in Ohio, we have been very laser focused on making sure the pillars of an economic business environment are solid, low taxes, less regulation, 
cheap and abundant energy supply, tremendous workforce, and good infrastructure. So Ohio is a good place to start a business. Engaging with Israel, you're going to get ideas that are backed by very, very smart people who understand the concept of bringing an idea to market. Uh, because you, you can't just be the great startup company. You have to be a closing co uh, country as well. And that's why I said before, their idea of we only can close uh, when we join bigger nations and because they have, you know, they're just so much bigger. That's where a relationship is. Look, you go to Israel and you understand firsthand why security is so paramount, but it does not cripple uh, their daily lives. It does not cripple their entrepreneur spirit. They're not going to let uh, the, you know the the danger that looms constantly to impact how they operate. And so you're in Tel Aviv, and it, it is a modern, active city churning out economic growth and economic activity and economic ideas. Uh, everyone spoke English, so the the idea that there's going to be some sort of language or cultural barrier, I didn't feel it at all. In addition to serving as the state senator from Ohio's 24th Senatorial District, uh, Senator, you worked for some time in the family business. Your father, of course, is Larry, owner of the Cleveland Guardians, formerly the Cleveland Indians. That's Cleveland's Major League Baseball team. So I, I just have to ask, while you were in Israel, did you get a chance to check out any of the uh, Israeli national baseball team's practices? They were getting ready at the time you were there for uh, the World Baseball Classic, which took place earlier this year. And uh, any thoughts on the progress that they're making in Israel with regard to developing a passion for good old American baseball there? We didn't see any, but uh, I did look for baseball fields. Soccer fields by far dominated. But in the last World Baseball Classic, Israel advanced, or they won a couple of games at least. So the game is growing in Israel. The number of Israelis playing in the professional baseball is growing. And I know they did, they did qualify for this year's World Baseball Classic. So yeah, I'm Personally, I'm thrilled. I mean, I, I love the game of baseball and the fact that it's growing uh, and, and impacting all parts of the world is, is fantastic. Yeah, unfortunately, the Israeli team didn't do quite as well this time around, but baseball is still in its nascent stage in Israel, so there's hope for the future of the game there, as you note. Our guest has been Ohio State Senator Matt Dolan, Republican from the 24th District in Ohio. Senator Dolan, it's good to know we have a friend and a partner in Columbus helping to grow these relationships between Ohio and Israel, keeping the path open for business. Thank you very much for your participation in the mission and for joining us on this edition of Innovative States. Well, thank you. I appreciate it, and thank you for for, uh, having me on. You're listening to Innovative States, Ohio, Israel, and the Impact of Exchange. I'm your host, Sean Fink. Innovative States News. Here's Innovative States news you can use. The future of automotive transportation may be in the hands of bean counters, but it's not necessarily what you think. An Israeli company, Castera, has developed a genetically engineered castor bean, which may be the automotive fuel additive of tomorrow. According to a report from Israeli tech news site NoCamels.com, Castera has discovered a new use for the ancient castor bean, which is actually a seed grown from the Spurge family of flowering plants. The company's engineers have cultivated a newer version of the species with higher yields and oil content, which make it perfect for use in biodiesel. Those are uh, fuels blended from vegetable or animal fats, which help to cut back on greenhouse gas emissions from cars and trucks. 
Castera's modified seeds can produce castor beans within four months compared with the unadapted version grown on farms, which the company's CEO Ayal Ronen says takes six to eight months typically. That means farms growing the Castera castor beans can produce yields three times a year. And in addition to providing bigger yields by growing taller and consuming less space than their unmodified cousins, the Castera seeds produce more oil, boasting 50% oil content compared to 30 to 40% in regular castor beans. Castera used more than 300 varieties from over 40 countries in the process of cultivating its new breed, and rather than taking the typical 10 years or more to create a new plant variety, Castera was able to incorporate technology developed by its parent company, Evogene, which cut the development time in half. Castera has been selling its genetically engineered castor beans to farms in South America for the last several years, and they've just announced that they've secured two orders worth a total of $11.3 million to provide their seeds for biodiesel production in countries in Africa. For more information, visit Castera online at C-A-S-T-E-R-R-A dot C-O. That's Castera, C-A-S-T-E-R-R-A dot C-O. That's Innovative States, news you can use. Visit OhioIsrael.org for more information about OIACI partnerships, missions to Israel, and more. OhioIsrael.org is your gateway to the latest innovations in ag, clean tech, and food production from leading companies and researchers in Ohio and Israel. Water Preservation this is episode number five of Innovative States, Ohio, Israel, and the Impact of Exchange. I'm your host, Sean Fink. Our next guest, Justin Morata, developed a successful greenhouse business, becoming involved in leadership roles within associations in the floriculture industry before retiring. Today, Justin's a vocal advocate for water preservation and treatment, and his trip to Israel on an OIACI water mission led him to discover Israeli-manufactured solutions to problems he saw back home. We're joined now on Innovative States by Justin Morata. He's a now-retired floriculturist with a passion for water preservation, and he visited Israel on an OIACI water mission. Justin, welcome to Innovative States. Well, thank you, Sean. Pleasure. Let's start out by finding out a little bit about what you did in your pre-retirement life. Tell me a little bit about your business. And about 41 years ago, a little over 41 now since I've been retired eight years, so it's almost 50 years, I started uh, within the greenhouse industry back in Belleville, Ohio. But I was born and raised in the greenhouse industry up in Lake County in Mentor. So I grew up within the auspices of my grandfather, my parents, my uncles, and all those individuals who uh, worked that field for all of their entire life. I succumbed to that same challenge. I was a personnel director at Lazarus upon uh, leaving college, graduating, and uh, got the whim to get into the greenhouse business. Saw an old dilapidated greenhouse, and we took it from there uh, and developed it and ran it for 41 years. We uh, got into the vegetative fuchsia and vegetative cutting business as a part of it, and we also had a very, very good uh, retail center, garden center, that was run by my wife, who had an excellent talent for all of that. She was a home ec teacher for, for five years until our first son was born. Then I became uh, involved in the leadership of the grower and a floriculture association in Ohio, as well as the nation, uh, serving on two boards there. So you're growing a business that focuses on growing plants and you're dealing with consumers. You've got a commercial division and lo and behold, you become involved with OIACI. How did that happen? Well, that was Mr. Sam Honig. Uh, Sam, for whatever reason, contacted me at that time. I was 
I was must have been involved with the leadership of the Ohio Florist Association, and I was former president of that association in 99-2000, but uh, Sam and I connected well before that. Of course, the OAICA, whatever, all those initials, the acronym, <laughs> did not exist in the very beginning. We right. were just Ohio-Israeli Agriculture you know, Committee, and that that's what bound me and, and got me involved. I've been always intrigued with science, you know, the capabilities and the, the industry's growth potential, because essentially food security, all sorts of things are going to evolve into what they call CEA, controlled environments today. So it kind of just morphed into all of that. And now they've broadened it with the clean tech initiative uh, concept and stuff. So it's a much broader picture that, that we're incorporating into the committee. And I've been involved with the committee ever since its inception. And uh, that I've enjoyed looking at the different directors of agriculture for the Department of Agriculture. And fortunately, we had Dr. Stephen Slack, who uh, was involved in it. And he and I still remain very close friends to this day. So it's been an excellent networking situation for you both in the state of Ohio. And then as we're going to find out in Israel as well. It has been. That's been uh, my essential uh, graduate work, more or less is uh, working with these individuals. I've enjoyed it immensely. And then in 2017, you take Sam up on his offer to participate in OIACI's water mission to Israel. Did you go with a goal in mind? Was there some new technology or technique you wanted to see in person while you were visiting Israel? Not particularly. Uh, over the course of all those years, Sam always was in, in uh, encouraging me to go to Israel. But when you're running your own business and you have a family, it's, it's not those opportune times. So in 2017, with the year, two years after I retired, it was a great opportunity. WATEC was taking place, fortunately, at that time in 2017. And uh, that's a global initiative, basically. And it was hosted at that time in Israel. So that provided an excellent opportunity to look at wastewater, clean water, things like that, that, sh that are very critical uh, to the globe, but also to our nation. And we're fortunate to have the Great Lakes, the Great Lakes uh, initiative and everything like that. But we have to be uh, good, good stewards of all of that as well. So whatever the science and, and the technology and the relationship that the public and the private sector has in is Israel was very important to see. And it was very broadening and a wonderful thing to see how cooperative they were. And while you're there, you discover Israeli approaches to their challenging water supply situation that you, as a water enthusiast, envision finding uses for back home? The West Coast needs water. So desalination for the West Coast and even Florida probably makes for practical uh, applications. In our situation and the rest of, of the U.S., the wastewater is an element that's very important. In Israel, 80 to 85 percent of the wastewater is used in agricultural benefits so for growing crops, you know, for greening of an environment, all sorts of things. Water is the quintessential element. I mean, 90 plus percent of our bodies are made up of water. We're human elements that are water related and oriented. So to me, water has always been important in my business because of the need for water. We actually had two additional wells drilled, and so we had three wells that were all linked and tied together. So if any one well went down, we could always provide water to that element that was important, whether it be my residence, the greenhouse, the lower areas, or anything like that that, that needed water. 
which was vital. The security of water to me, in, even in my little instance, was very important. Now, the EPA didn't understand that concept. They actually wanted me to disconnect the service to all three of those wells. And I talked them into, no, that's not going to happen because of the essential need of water for the living organisms that we were working with. They relented and uh, we continue to uh, be able to provide that emergency service at will. What specifically did you see in Israel that you were able to introduce and deploy back in the States? Well, there was that membrane technology that's used a, a lot in Israel. It's an element that's really intriguing to me because of the size and scope that could be implemented for small communities and even small businesses that had sewage treatment plants. So how did the Israeli technology differ from similar systems produced elsewhere? The serviceability and the, the size and the capability and it was odor-free, essentially, and it was sustainable. It's self-sustaining for a period of time. And then the replacement elements of the membranes, you know, they had a life expectancy of maybe 10 to 15 years. I think it was 10 years and had to be replaced. But that regenerative system was something that I gravitated towards. And then there's the treatment plants where they're using sand filtration, things like that. So even though Israel is a much smaller country than the United States, what you found was a scalable solution. <laughs> we saw one of their larger uh, facilities, which was the Shaftan, and that's that large uh, sewage treatment plant, you know, that's which huge. And then they use the 250 acres or hectares of land to actually act as a filtration basis. And they monitored all of that through deep wells, et cetera. So that water was recycled, reused in a wastewater management system to provide agricultural and green abilities. That was intriguing. And then we saw the desalination plant, which was just fantastic. I mean, to, to observe and watch water within 45 minutes uh, be desalinized and um, able to be drunk at that given moment was amazing to, to uh, be able to participate in. And again, they're using uh, reverse osmosis systems with 3M filters of major magnitudes and, and a high energy plant, you know, requires a great deal of energy. And their energy, uh, from what we understood, was being extracted from Jordan in some of their solar fields. And they were reselling water to Jordan at a lower reduced rate than what really the population of Israel was paying. There was a great benefit for that entire region. And Israel was the initiator in, in all of these projects. Having been to Israel, Justin, and spoken directly with their experts in water preservation and reuse, why is it that you think a small country like Israel has been able to produce such dramatic results in those fields, while we here in the U.S. seem to be lagging behind? The cooperation between the private and the public sector, that entity that actually ran the entire water system, which is a privately owned company, but they work cooperatively with all the public entities of the cities of Tel Aviv, et cetera. That was really impressive. And I think that's the thing and the basis that we still have to learn here, which is unfortunate. We have silos still in cities, counties, states, things like that that need to work together and be more collaborative and get things done. Yeah, the, the private-public initiative is called Mikorot, but that's okay. We're not grading you on your Hebrew. Uh, and that, that group actually predates the modern-day state of Israel by 11 years, having been founded in 1937. So it's interesting, while many of us who've dealt with Israel uh, like to focus on their bureaucracy, 
When it comes to managing natural resources, you discovered, compared to the U.S. and Ohio in particular, Israel's ahead of the curve, aren't they? The other big thing was when I was looking at the membrane technology, I wanted to see that implemented in our small communities that I was living in at that time, which was Butler and Belleville, Ohio. And they were both getting ready to build new sewage treatment plants. One plant was already out of regulations and, and, and they had a timeline in which to do things. The other one had issues on smell. So we actually brought in a company called Fluence to bring that technology to the engineers here and the EPA. I mean, the EPA actually came up. We had a very good meeting, but unfortunately, engineers in today's society are reticent to change. They're not as accepting to the potential of change and the availability of new technology. They might be scared of it would be another term. So they didn't opt for that. But the good thing, they did regionalize the system. And our goal was to regionalize the system as well. So they regionalized the system based on what they knew today in their engineering aspects. Sounds as if the Israeli technology really surprised and impressed you with its capabilities. When we looked at the membranes and, and the like, it was just unbelievable, especially when it's 105, 107 degrees in a desert, arid condition, and literally there's no smell. I mean, give me a break. That's that's pretty good. Lately, we've seen incredible extremes across the U.S., in particular this summer, where, uh, as we're recording this segment, a large part of the country is sweltering under a heat dome. July looks like it will have been the hottest month on record uh, globally. Phoenix, Arizona, has been suffering from 100-plus degree temps, for example, all summer without a drop of rain since April. And uh, the heat is obviously not conducive to water preservation. Where do you see Israeli technology being able to help here in the U.S.? Let's say in the short term, the next five, 10 years, and in the longer term, next 20 to 50 years, as we in the U.S. begin to face the fact our natural resources, water in particular, are limited. Well, you mentioned the heat dome and you mentioned the central states. You look at the central states, you know, food production is very critical. And the purity of water is critical to food production. And the security of that water is very critical to food production. So what's happening in California, where fields are going barren, they're losing pecan trees, all sorts of conditions are being lost due to water shortages. <laughs> There's, it, it's probably a, a twofold element and, it may, and maybe more folds than that in the sense that desalination in their, in their region would be very helpful and beneficial. Do you think we're in danger of ignoring the canary in the coal mine? Have we passed our window of opportunity to make a difference on a national level? It's taken then 10 years to build a plant that was developed by the Israelis. The technology was brought to California, but due to regulations, this and that, it was a 10-year process. Whereas you look at the, the SORG uh, desal plant, that was probably a one to two-year facility that produces 500,000 gallons of water a, a day. Uh, which is significant. And so going back to your question about where we are in the short term and long term, short term, you know, we have to utilize our water better than what we do. In other words, if you look at the price of water today, and it's going up everywhere, in, you know, in our municipal environments, and we're watering our lawns, we're doing this, we're doing that with high cost water, essentially, because of the minerals that are put in play, the clarities that's put in play, the chlorinations and all sorts of things. So it's very costly water to be utilized in landscape, in agriculture and things like that. Whereas we can use the wastewater that is developed from that instead of 
putting it back into a stream or whatever and sending it to a lake or a pond or whatever, uh, we can better utilize that by developing systems within communities that use gray water. Now, they're doing it in Texas. They're doing it in other arid areas where they have sustained systems separated by like a purple line or a gray line or something like that, which they can use for their own growth, agricultural growth, development, their green environment, et cetera. We need to incorporate that same philosophy anywhere. <laughs> we worry about the trivial things of like burning natural gas to cook with. Are you kidding me? The, the essential thing is water because we are, like I said, originally water-based. The need for water is important. So what everybody should be concentrating on are systems that are that are common sense systems that are are realistic to put in play, you know, not something so ridiculous as far as size, scope, and science that you know that man can't put their arms around. We have to we have to educate the young to develop for our long term futures, you know, when it comes to the water and the care of water and, and utilization, and be practical. I'm not a green proponent. I don't carry a flag. I don't have all these things other than the U.S. flag. So whatever systems can be developed needs to be coordinated collaboratively within academia, the private sector, the public sector, et cetera. And the EPA shouldn't be just a fining organization. They should be an educational organization primarily. So it's more solution-based. Solution-based. You're exactly right. Just don't come in and, and with a hammer come in with a book or come in with the the guidance that would make a business functional better a, a better community respondent and stuff like that you know that's that's the important thing the big thing is is food security and water security go hand in hand they go hand in hand you were able to implement a very specific solution from Israel for a very specific usage in Ohio can you elaborate on that a little I sit on a, a board a botanical board here locally it's called Kingwood Center Gardens we were implementing a new pond restructuring, our duck pond. This sounds kind of corny and quaint. My goal, because we were uh, revitalizing and redeveloping, uh, renovating this pond, and it was a $1.5 million adventure, uh, it's a very expensive duck pond, they were putting a bioremediation area in place. Because I sit on the board and I wasn't actively involved in the construction and stuff, I said, well, let's carry it a, a bit further and looks, look at filtration to coincide with remediation. In other words, remediation is only going to take out a certain grouping of, of um, bacteria and the like, you know, that are in the water, in aeration, et cetera. But if we put, implement the filtration part after that, per se, then we can purify and, and uh, extract elements that are, are really detrimental, not detrimental, but just for the naked eye, you know, are obvious. And then we were taking this, this water from the filtration system and we're pumping it upstream to introduce it as a kind of artistic flow coming into the pond. And again, it's creating anaerobic and aerobic mechanisms within the water with aeration itself by matriculating down through the rocks, et cetera. So, you know, it was a composite and, and, and uh, interesting bit of things that we put together. So what was involved in importing and implementing that solution for the duck pond? And were there any obstacles you ran into along the way? We were very fortunate. I contacted Sam and asked who would be a potential Israeli company to work with because we did not see every Israeli company 
in the 10 days that I was there, it would be an improbable task. So it was Atlanta, sure. And we were able to work with them. Uh, the system was relatively, I'm not going to say inexpensive, nor was it expensive. I mean, it was a practical, common element that showed promise. And we implemented and we have that stage now in, in running the system. Now, is it is it performing the way I would like to see it? Nah, not quite yet. And I think in part because you know, we don't understand its use. In other words, I think the system should run 365, 24-7 uh, in order to be functional. And I think we made a mistake this winter uh, shutting down that aspect of the system because it's an unknown and a mechanical element. We have harsh winters here in Mansfield, Ohio. That was a concern by our maintenance staff and supervisory element. I think this coming year will make some changes and we'll modify that thinking and get that thing to, to function the way I think it can and, and should function. So Atlanta Pure is sitting here and is functioning on a day-to-day -day basis, 24-7, and we're happy with that currently. And it's an educational element that we put in play combined with the remediation of the water through plant material and root systems that we want to educate the public on. In other words, these are things you can do to make water cleaner and better to use. So Atlanta Pure served as a kind of go-between between the U.S. and Israel because they take the technology and the products developed in Israel and they deploy them here as the uh, installer and, and reseller here in the U.S. That is correct. And I'm going to tell you, it shipped marvelously. Every element was built in Israel, shipped to the U.S., and we've had no no issues with it at all. And you're happy with the support you've received from Atlanta Pure Water? Yes. Orrin's been very helpful in the course of a phone call or anything like that. We found some unusual quirky things like um, one of the wires were loose and so one of the solenoids didn't function, yada, yada, yada. And it would shut down the system. Once they addressed all those elements, uh, that detail, and it's understandable. I mean, you travel a few thousand miles. You get rattled a little bit, um, both uh, as a human and as a piece of equipment. <laughs> right, right. So overall, how would you sum up your relationship with OIACI? It's been a fun project for me. I, I thoroughly enjoyed working with Sam and Sarah Horowitz originally. Those two individuals kept me in the loop and always asked good questions. And we're just great, great people. And I respect that. So it's mutual mutual respect, and that's that's important. That absolutely is. Obviously, there's a mutual respect between where you are in Richland County and those you've been in contact with in Israel, where uh, the technology has been developed. Are the ducks enjoying their newly refurbished pond? So far, the ducks are happy. Well, I guess that's all you can ask for, Justin. Our guest, Justin Morata, thanks for joining us on Innovative States. <laughs> This has been Innovative States, Ohio, Israel, and the Impact of Exchange. I hope you've enjoyed learning about the work of OIACI in creating and nurturing partnerships between researchers, food producers, policymakers, farmers, and creative thinkers in Ohio and Israel. For additional information about OIACI and how you too can get involved in developing a partnership through OIACI, please visit OhioIsrael.org or email info at ohioisrael.org. Innovative States is a podcast presentation of the Ohio-Israel Agriculture and Clean Tech Initiative, a project of the Negev Foundation, produced and hosted by Sean Fink. 
Thank you for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next month for another edition of Innovative States, Ohio, Israel, and the Impact of Exchange.